Well, when I get a chance to talk from this platform to the church that I love so much, I, I love to talk about the relationships that are closest to us. And so I know, I know, I know, it's Tim Kimmel probably going to talk on family again. Yep, <laughs> I am. That's because we're all from one. We all have one. We've all been hardwired by one. In fact, the single most influential story of our lives is how we were raised, and it, it just kind of writes the script for so much that follows. Doesn't mean that uh, that's a bad thing, especially if our parents had a good idea what they were doing. Uh, you know, you can get a good start, but then, then there's a lot of parents. They have nice people and loved us, but no one kind of explained how the thing goes. And so some of us come into adulthood and get our own kids, and next thing you know, we feel like, man, what in the world are we doing? And then kids know how to push all of our buttons, don't they? Maybe yours don't. Our kids certainly know how to push our buttons. They... Some, they, sometimes they figure it out before they can even talk. And they just like to shove them all in and get us pretty well uh, off, off course from the beginning. And then the more kids you have, the more they kind of team up on this kind of strategy to drive us crazy. That's okay. I mean, that's part of being kids, but it's just exasperating sometimes, isn't it? And, 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 and I don't know whether you've ever been in this situation. Uh, Darcy and I have certainly been in it where... <laughs> You know, it's been a rough day, a long day. And they've just been just trying to figure out every lousy thing they can bring out of you. And then they finally go to sleep. And this, whether they're little ones or they're those uh, elementary school kids or even the teenagers, they finally go to sleep. Have you ever been in a situation, I mean, your parents or grandparents, where you finally, the, the, you stopped in on their bedroom to just check on them as they're asleep, and they've fallen asleep. And it's been a nasty, frustrating day. But then there they are asleep. And isn't it interesting how your heart just reaches out to them there in their sleep? And you just want to go over and you put your hands on their little head asleep and you say, Demon, come out! <laughs> what is your problem? You're driving me nuts! Well, part of it is that no one kind of tells us how to do this thing. And culture would like to weigh in on it, but culture sure has lost its way. And all the other pressures we have on us as people trying to raise kids at this time in our lives or influence kids or be a kid. A lot of you are kids. Those of you over there in the 1110 service, you have a lot more younger folks over there. That's where Darcy and I, by the way, uh, we, we usually uh, worship over there and we just love that 1110 group. Uh, so we're going to be talking to all of you today about how to bring the best out of each other. You see, God actually left the plan behind for us to, uh, a way for us to deal with the people up close to us, especially our kids or grandkids. He, he left the plan behind that comes directly from his heart. And when we embrace this with everything we've got, it's amazing how things change. And we like to call it grace-based parenting. Now, Darcy and I had four children, but when we got our first one, we, we, we were just like everybody else. What do we do now? And, and we saw the competition for their value system from the culture, and, and, uh, and then we had hurried lives just like so many people out there have. We're just too busy, and Satan figured out he didn't have to make any of us bad. He just had to make us too busy, and he can wreak a havoc on, on the relationships up close. So we were like that, and, and we just felt like God had to have left more instructions for us in the Bible. And we read a lot of the Christian books on parenting, they were all about, uh, about discipline and correcting kids, and there's a place for that, but for crying out loud, that's not the sole 
focus of our lives, and, and, and it shouldn't be something like it's just us against them. That's no fun. And we just ask God to give us some insight into this. And, and I'm, not, I'm not a scholar. I'm not that smart and clever to find something in, hidden in some deep little passage of the Bible. I needed the obvious, and he, and he, he kind of gave us this kind of an aha moment in our early days of parenting where we were just begging God, please show us in your word a plan you left behind for us to raise our kids with because it's got to be there. I went to Dallas Seminary and they had theologies on everything there. You could study every theology you can imagine on angels and, and demons and heaven and, and hell and salvation and the Bible and truth and Jesus and the whole, you know, everything. There was not one theology on family there. There was no theology on parenting. I thought, there's got to be. Well, sure enough, God did leave one behind. It was center stage there all along. We'd been tripping over it, bang, banging over it. Uh, it, was, it was right there all along. It was, he would say, wait a minute, I'm a parent. I'm parenting you. Why don't you do what I'm doing? Why don't you model your, your plan for, your, for how you bring you, raise your kids the way I raise you? And we just thought to think about, can you possibly quantify God's methodology of dealing with his kids, and sure enough, you could. And, and so that's kind of what Darcy and I started studying and writing about and working on in Family Matters, the ministry we're in, and also working with our own kids on it. And it's really been, a, it's just been an amazing ride to see God's heart, that there's a way you can embrace God's heart in how you imprint your kids. And we like to call it grace based parenting because of all the words and attributes of God uh, grace is the one that's so unique to the God of Christianity there is no other God that people worship that is a gracious God only God Jehovah that they sang about who sent his son to die on a cross for us to set us free and so so I want to talk to you about this grace based parenting and to do that I want you to take out your Bibles and I want to show you a grace based family in the Bible Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2. Now, if you're a Bible student and you know all about, you're pretty familiar and know your way around the Bible, and Luke 2 is a very familiar passage to you because that's a famous passage in the Bible. That's the Christmas story in Luke 2. That is a great story. We're not going to look at that one. There's another story in Luke 2 about an incident that happened when Jesus was 12 years old. That's the one I want to I look at. Because um, Jesus was brought up by some very unique people. Remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to, to Mary and said, Mary, you are highly favored. Do you know what the Greek word is for favored? It's the same word we translate grace. You're a gracious woman. You really reflect God's heart of grace. And because of that... He, he set you apart to do something extraordinary. He's going to put, through the power of his spirit, he's going to put a baby in your womb who is going to transform the world. Um, he was going to he, he put his son in there. Now, so, so she responded with all the fear and, that anybody would, but she said, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. He also appeared to Joseph, who was, going to, he was engaged to be married to this, this young woman, and when he found out that she was expecting, well, what would you feel if you were in that situation? And all the cultural pushback, and, 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 all, and normally you'd think, well, the, the person's been unfaithful, I want nothing to do with her, I'm going to shame her. And all. I mean, he said, no, 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 this is something extraordinary going on here and 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 i went in and she she's got god's spirit in her and he just loved her and he married her and he didn't wor worry about what the the cultural pushback was so these were gracious people now watch this verse 39 
And over there at 1110, turn your Bibles to Luke 2, verse 39 and 40. And what 39 and 40 do are they form hinge verses between the story of Mary and Joseph having Jesus in Bethlehem and then this thing, that, this incident that happened when he was 12. Watch how Luke pulls us out of one story into the next. He says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew. He became strong. He was filled with wisdom. And look at the next line. And the grace of God was upon him. So the grace of God was upon him. In other words, this boy was in a great, he had God's grace on him because he was also in a grace-based family. And what, what Luke does now is he shifts from the general statement, the grace of God was upon him, and he gets specific and gives us an example of God's grace on this boy in, in a given situation. Look at verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Let's hit the pause button here in our Bible. If, if this was the first time you ever saw this passage, you might be wondering, what was the Heavenly Father thinking when he assigned the earthly care of his only begotten son to these two people? that they would actually take off and leave him behind and be unaware of it. Now, I can completely understand taking off and leaving your kids behind and being totally aware of it. <laughs> Darcy and I have thought of doing that many times. But this, at first glance, looks like child neglect, doesn't it? Until you read on and you realize nothing unusual is going on because verse 44 says, thinking he was in their company. Some of your Bibles might translate that caravan. They traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. So they're, they're moving in this large entourage of friends and family. Everybody knows everyone. And you know how the, rule, the rules go. When you're in a large, multi-generational gathering of family members, the rule is, is the adults keep an eye on whatever kid is nearby. You're responsible for whatever kid's near you. Right? That's how it works. So they weren't worried because aunts and uncles and everybody's there. And so they, they weren't worried about Jesus because other people have an eye on him. Plus, this isn't a little boy. This is a 12-year-old. You let them over the hill and out of sight. On top of that, this is the most responsible, reliable 12-year-old boy two parents ever had. So they weren't worried when they took off that he wasn't in, in eyesight of them. But when dinner time came and he didn't show for dinner, they knew we got a serious problem here because this is a boy. He's 12 and it's dinner. They show to top their tanks, don't they? So look what happens. Let's go to the next verse there. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they doubled back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the elders, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. But when his parents saw him, they were astonished. That's, that's uh, um, the least of what they were. Uh, let, let's put ourselves in their sandals for a second. Okay, it's been three days. They've been turning Jerusalem upside down looking for this kid. They've gone to all the places that they thought he might be, and they went to the places they hoped he wasn't, but they had to check regardless, like, uh, you know, the ER, the, the equivalent back then of the juvenile lockup, whatever it was. They're looking at all these places. They can't find him. It's night. Let's, let's say they're in the motel, and they're trying to get some sleep. 
to pick up for, in the hunt at first light. And here's Mary. She's lying in her bed thinking, I've misplaced God. <laughs> Boy, am I going to be in trouble for this one. And when they locate him, they realize not only is he okay, but he's been okay the entire three days that they haven't been. You with me there? He's been fine. They've been a, 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 a nightmarish nervous wreck for three days. And so when they realize he's okay, they have two emotions. Obviously, they're relieved that he's okay, but what else are they? They're angry. They're just like any of us would be if one of our kids did this to us. They just want to take him and shake him. And that's okay because there's no teenage uh, baby shaking syndrome on teenagers. Their head's on good by then. You just want to shake them. <laughs> and what were you thinking, boy? You scared us to death. So Mary is just, she's exasperating. She says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You can feel the, 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 just the agony and the exasperation in her voice. If you have a red-letter Bible, it turns red, right, on the next verse. This is the first verse, this is the first words recorded to Jesus in the Bible, as far as age goes. Twelve-year-old Jesus says in verse 49, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, how are they supposed to know that? How in the world are they supposed to know that? Well, you've got to do some detective work. But there's one thing that happened that might have tipped them off to go up there on the Temple Mount. And look, just look up there. You'll find them up there. Remember I mentioned that angels appeared to them? So it's like they, uh, Jesus is saying, Mom, Dad, come on, buy a vowel. This isn't that tough. We sent you guys angels. How many parents get that? What did the angel say to them? He said, look, you know, you're going to have a child. He's got an agenda. Work with him. So, so this shouldn't have taken them off course here, off guard. But they didn't. Look at the next verse. He's telling them, you know, why were you searching for you? Didn't you know I had to be up here? Look at verse 50. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. They didn't get it. So what happened? Verse 51, then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, don't miss this. Verse 51 is very important if you want to get a grasp on what grace looks like in a family. Because verse 51 shows three people, the three people of this drama, responding very differently to one another than we normally do under stress. And that's what's unique about grace in a relationship. Grace responds differently than our normal selfish default mode would respond under stress. Look what Jesus did. It says, it says that he went down to Nazareth and was obedient to them. In other words, he submitted to the... To the um, uh, uh, to the earthly guardians that God had assigned to them. He submitted to them. And it says, And Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Well, last time I checked, you treasure things you value. And yet the verse just before this, she didn't understand what was going on. And two verses before this, she's yelling at him, and yet she now treasures everything that just happened. See, that's, that's a different response than what the circumstances would dictate. Are you with me on this? Are you tracking with the logic on this? In other words, 
they didn't respond the way we normally would in that situation because they're gracious people. They have God's grace in their heart. They're extending God's grace through tough times. I mean, you can see grace also by what didn't happen. Joseph could have spoke up, spoken up about now and said, you know, Jesus, you are so grounded, it's unbelievable. Don't plan on a personal life for an indefinite period of time. I'm so angry at you. Mary, excuse me, Jesus could have pulled some fairly serious divine artillery out about now himself. He said, I, I think you've forgotten who you're dealing with here. <laughs> How about I refresh your memory? You know, it was me that came up with that original line, let there be light. I made you. I made the ground that you're standing on, the air you're breathing, the gravity that's holding you to the ground. I could take out and, and draw, draw your DNA code. You don't even know what I'm talking about. You're not going to tell me whether I can or what I can or cannot do. He had the authority to say that to them. But he didn't exercise it because he was responding to them in grace. See, grace shows up under stress. I like to call it everyday grace. <coughs> Pardon me, here's the problem. Is that I, my observation is that we Christians, we evangelical Christians, I think we get grace when it comes to salvation. In fact, I know we, under, we, we figured out grace when it comes to that. I was, once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We get what it means to be in a position that where there's nothing we could possibly do to, to earn and, and make it to the standards needed for us to get into heaven, that not one of us can get into heaven on our good work. We figured that out, that only through us putting our faith in God sending his son to the cross and dying in our place, putting our faith in Jesus' work for us on the cross, can we be set free. So we get that. That's, that's, that's saving grace. I think we Christians get saving grace, but after we get the grace of the cross, it's a, we have a bad habit of giving grief to one another after that. How so? Is it's real easy to fall into the pattern of expecting people to perform to our level of satisfaction, our, our standards, before we'll give them the favor, the, the acceptance, and so forth. And it's real easy to do in parenting. Real easy to do. And, and Darcy and I are just like everybody else. We walk around on the same feet of clay everybody else does. We have kids that have sin nature just like, every, like you, your kids do. So all the same stress was there, but we didn't want the same kind of situation of which we had seen going on around it as well as the way we were brought up. We, want, we wanted to be able to tie into God's heart, and, and that's where grace-based parenting broke it, just, just kind of cracked itself open for us, and we saw what it was. All grace-based parenting is, is simply treating your kids the way God treats his kids. That's all it is, quantified out. And so what I want to do is I want to take this little house here and put it up here where you can see this, because I want to use this house as kind of a, an illustration of how you can quantify God's grace. You need to know something, too, that I... I think from the complex to the simple. That's the direction my brain always goes. I don't go the other direction. I'm grateful there are people that go the other direction because you invent stuff that's really cool like airplanes and rockets and cars and cool stuff like that. But I go the other direction. How do you take abstract, difficult things and try and get them down to where we can get our arms and hands around them? And that's what I want to try and do to you when it comes to God's grace. Because, see, God did leave us 
a standard, a way to help one another when it comes to families. And what's interesting about God's grace and His plan for grace is that you can use this not just in your relationship with your kids, but your relationship with your spouse and your friends. Uh, and for you young folks there, especially you young ones over there in 11, 10, you need to know that this what I'm going to show you here is a matrix that you can put into your heart as an extension of God's grace that will really help you in your closer relationships, dating relationships, falling in love, and all that stuff. Now, you'll see there's a foundation under this, this gold kind of stained foundation, and, and what that represents here is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That to have grace in our heart, we have to first receive grace from Jesus. But if you have a foundational relationship with grace, then this blue level here represents one of the first ways that God deals with us. See, God knows the deepest longings of our heart, and he, and he wants to do something through His grace that, that helps meet those deep longings. And you know what the deepest longing of our, of our hearts are? So we want to be free. God wired us to be free. Even our country put that in one of its legal documents of how that seems to be a driving force of people. We want to be free. And see, grace-based families and grace-based parents create an atmosphere of grace by meeting, giving their kids four very specific freedoms. And if you, if we're going we're gonna to unpack those in, in your outline, in your bulletin, so I'll, I'm going to come back to those. But let me kind of move on up the thing so I kind of give you a big picture Look at this, because you see, without a comprehensive strategy that thinks through everything for us, it's real easy to get off course when it comes to raising our kids. It's real easy to fall into the trap of going on their performance and, and, and how they behave and all that stuff. I, I see a lot of parents struggle with sin management, and they're just trying to keep their kids from sinning and keeping them uh, from being exposed to sin. There's a lot of fear-based parenting going on because we don't have a clear, concise comprehensive strategy for parenting. So we want to create an atmosphere of grace. The green area here is you want to meet the three driving needs of your children's heart. All children are born with three great needs, and, do, and God always wants to meet those in our hearts. Here's the problem. The average parent, were you to ask the average parent, what are the three driving needs, gnawing needs of the human heart? Uh, if they took a guess, they might get one, but m most of us would not be able to tell you what those three are, and you know why? It's not because there's anything wrong with any of us. Nobody tells us. How are we supposed to know if somebody doesn't tell us? And I think we've skipped two generations when it comes to how parenting is supposed to be done. See, parenting is supposed to be, we are supposed to raise our kids in such a way that we've trained them how to raise their kids. That's how it's supposed to go. But we got preoccupied with all the abundance after World War II and, and, and the most profitable um, uh, progressive time in our nation's history, then that offspring got lost in the 60s and the 70s without moral, moral core, and then, then we get to where we are now. But, but this generation wants to change that. And so we, we want to create an atmosphere of grace and meet the three driving needs. Now, here's what's interesting. I said that the average parent would be hard-pressed to tell you what the three inner needs are, but there's one person where he's standing right here, and I asked him what the three driving needs of a human heart are. He'd say, oh, they're so obvious, I can't believe you don't know that. And he rattled him right off. His name, by the way, is Lucifer. He not only knows what these three needs are, he appeals to them constantly with, with counterfeits. And so we need to meet their kids' needs. And, and, and by the way, we're going to be unpacking this thing in depth in a way that you can make it your own and make it second nature to you at the Raising Truly Great Kids Conference 
in, in, in November. I hope you can come to that because we'll give you a chance to really get this down deep and, and, and we can go in and we can unpack all these things for you. I don't have time to do those now. But all kids need to know they're secure. They need to know they're significant. They need to know that they're strong or sufficient for what life is come, bringing at them. And the way a grace-based parent does that is it gives them a secure love, a significant purpose, and a strong hope. We'll show you exactly how you can do that if you can come to that conference. The yellow area there is building their character. That's the infrastructure of the heart. The kids need to know that they have the kind of strength that they can be resilient through the, the pressures of life and hold them up strong when they're afraid or when they're betrayed or when they're lonely or confused or tempted. And see, God wants to infuse character into them. And once again, we'll be able to unpack those later for you at, at, at that. And we have some resources that you can go into deeper. I'm just trying to show you the big picture, and then we're going to come back and really get into this one. Look at the roof here. The last thing about the Grace Space Parenting Plan has to do with where we aim our children. And you know, the easiest trap to fall into in our culture is to aim your kids to be successful. We want to raise kids to be successful. And that is the biggest mistake we can make as parents, is to raise kids to be successful. You say, Tim, how in the world can you make such an irresponsible statement? What's wrong with raising successful kids? The problem is how we quantify success in our culture. And how do we quantify it? Here's the standard ways we quantify success. Wealth, beauty, power, and fame. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but God places no value on those in the Bible. Those, you're aiming low if you aim your kids at success. There's something better, and it's straight from Jesus' heart, and we like to call it true greatness. You want to aim your kids at a future of true greatness. How would that be defined? A truly great person is a person that has a passionate love for Jesus Christ that shows itself in an unquenchable love and concern for others. That's what we're supposed to be doing in raising our kids, raising kids who love God and love others. In other words, you raise your kids aimed upwards and outwards at all times. What's the problem with success? It's all in, inwards. It's all about me. It's about my stuff, my recognition, my money, my accolades. That's the problem with that. Now, what's interesting is you can raise your kids to be truly great and they'll still end up very successful, but you just aim them more towards God. Well, with that in mind, let's go back to this blue level here and, and take out your outlines. I want to show you these four freedoms that you can build into your kids' lives. Because the, these things really, where these are really where grace, you know, uh, this hits the pavement. First thing, grace-based parents give their children the freedom to be different. The freedom to be different. Now, when I say different, let me give you some synonyms so you know where I'm coming from, because this is very important you get this. Synonyms like weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, and quirky. Grace-based homes have room for those kind of kids. Guess what kind of families don't have room for those kind of kids? Fear-based families. Sin control, sin management families. Evangelical behavioral modification families. High control families, legalistic families. There's no room for weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky kids. But why do you think some kids are weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, and quirky? I'll tell you why. God made them that way. He wanted them that way. And yet, if we resist those and make that uh, uh, something that's bad for them, we block their ability to embrace a heart for God. What's one of the standard ways kids sometimes show how weird they are? How they dress and what they do with their hair. It's been a standard 
battleground between parents and kids from the beginning of time. In fact, some kids, they do stuff with their hair that, well, it's just frightening sometimes. But So let's say you have a teenage son, and he comes home, and he's done something weird with his hair, and he spiked it weird, or he colored it weird, and you see this. Now, let, let me show you how some people respond in this that really undermines everything. You, you, you know, when your kids are weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky, they, that, that often annoys us, or it embarrasses us. But the way we fix that is we bring the heavy artillery out and say, you know, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. <laughs> so we, went, we brought in the big one right away. I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. And now the kid is all this guilt and, and shame and all because he did something weird with his hair. Well, guess what? I actually read, I read through the Bible every year. So when, when I do that, it's really easy to be looking for things on the way through. And one year I decided, because I'd refereed so many parent-kid arguments over hair, I thought, what does God actually say about hair? I'm going to just kind of keep my eye out for it on the way through. And I found out he doesn't care. He doesn't care. It's a toy on your head. It's always changing. Play with it. Express yourself. Be unique. He doesn't care. Just play with it. Have fun with it. And you might want to grab the opportunity while you can. Because <laughs> sometimes it bails on you. <laughs> so, we, we make these, see, what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about is grace-based homes have room for kids to be unique, one of a kind, and all that stuff, where what they're doing is not wrong, it's not bad, it's not evil, it's just different. Now, you can have arbitrary rules in a, in a grace-based home, you just got to make sure those arbitrary rules are not made into moral issues. And when we make them into moral issues, we shove wedges between them and God and between them and us. You see, what's interesting about the difference between a grace-based family where the family, the, the, the relationships are, are powered by God's heart and love compared to, let's say, families where they're doing all the things right and they're really, they teach all the truth and they teach all the Bible verses and the theology and they send their kids all the right things, but the kids don't respond the same. Let me show you the difference. It would be like the difference of, let's say, everything we did since we came in here from the beginning was the same except the temperature in here was 105. We did everything right. The songs they sang, the musicians were great. Everybody's singing, but, but let's say it was 105 degrees in here. You see, you wouldn't have had the same response to all the right stuff because you're so hot and uncomfortable. Or let's say it's 40 degrees. You're all dressed the same. You'd be so cold, you can't appreciate what's going on here, even though it's absolutely theologically and biblically correct because you're so cold. In the same way that if we're nursing grudges or we're, we have some latent anger and we haven't forgiven or, 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 or we're indifferent or we, whatever, all these things can undermine what we're trying to do. Grace-based homes give the kids they love the freedom to be different. In Proverbs, it says, train up a child according to his unique inner bent. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. That means according to his unique inner bent's. In other words, there's, there's these unique little quirky things about your kids. Work with that, not against that. Grace-based homes give kids the freedom to be different. They also give them the freedom to be vulnerable. The freedom to be vulnerable. What do I mean by that? Well, they don't have to wear masks around us. 
their inadequacies and fears and doubts can come to the surface without fear of them being attacked. I was going into the ninth grade, and I had a great example of how this looks. I was going into the ninth grade, Annapolis Senior High School, Annapolis, Maryland. And I was very excited because I was going to go to this big 5A school. I was going to play football for their famous coach. The girls were prettier. The rock and roll was louder. There was more of both. I thought, this is going to be so great. But that summer, a couple hundred of us incoming freshmen got letters in the mail from the Board of Education said, saying that because of overcrowded conditions, we were being annexed to an elementary school in downtown Annapolis. So instead of going to the big high school, we're back in elementary school. There were many trade-offs. Probably the biggest was in the area of phys ed, because this is a, uh, an area where nor normally for phys ed, you would you know, put on a phys ed outfit, go out and play hard, take a shower, put your school clothes back on. But we, we didn't have the luxury of that. We had to do everything in our school clothes, and that's a humid area, so it's kind of tough. There was a gymnasium in the second floor of a county building about a, month, uh, a block away, and I came in there one winter morning for phys ed. And I, I, when I came in the gym, I got very excited because there was a trampoline open in the middle of the gymnasium. And I got excited because I'd never jumped on one before. And they weren't pieces of equipment in backyards back then. Well, the, the coach came out. We all gathered around. And um, he said, Kimmel, uh, uh, he turned to me and said, Tim, uh, take off your shoes, climb up here, and follow my instructions. So I pulled my shoes off. But as I did, I realized I had holes in both of my socks. Not one, both. One of my friends made sure everybody noticed this. Oh, look at Tim. Look at his toes sticking out. We need to take up a collection, buy Tim some new socks. Now, were that to happen to me now at my age, I could care less what people think about how I look. I don't care about any of that stuff. But you know, when you're in that quarter of time, that, that 13, 14, 15, 16, that's a time when kids are unusually self-conscious. So this became a real embarrassing moment for me. And I was up there, and I was jumping, doing exactly what the coach was asking me to do, but all the time I'm thinking about my toes sticking out. And, I, and, and when I stood down, I, I, I was thinking, I'm going to go home, I'm going to get out my sock drawer, I'm going to darn every pair of socks, I will never, ever let this happen to me again. Well, when the class was over, the coach dismissed us, and he takes off, and I got on my shoes, I went over to the stage at the end of the gym, and got my books, and I went out the side door to get down the stairs, and I heard my name at the bottom stairs, Kimmel! Wait up. It was the coach. He came down the stairs and he, he pulled me over and he says, Hey, Tim, I want to tell you why I called on you to do the demonstration. Tim, you're the most agile student in my class. And then he reached down and he pulled off his tennis shoe and he had a big hole in his sock. He says, You know, us agile guys are tough on socks. Now go to class. So I'm heading over to class, and the whole way there I'm thinking, what's agile? Because <laughs> I had never heard a word before. I had no clue what it was. But I was going to English class. They had these big dictionaries on their own stand. They loved it when you actually, you know, looked up a word without a bazooka held to your head. So I'm looking up agile. No, I'm glad I didn't find argyle. Would that have been confusing or what? <laughs> but I read agile, and I read for the first time in my life that I could move with speed, ease, elegance, and liveliness. I read for the first time in my life that I was mentally alert and quick-witted. No one had ever told me that before. I wrote it down. I burned it into my brain. 
And I did a 180 degree turn in two major areas of my life, academics and athletics. In fact, a couple weeks later, they had this challenge, who can do the most sit-ups in the ninth grade? Now, they weren't those little stomach crunch things you gals do at the gym, forget that. You can do thousands of those, those don't matter. These were, <laughs> these were the old arthritic things that are no longer allowed in the, in the public school system where you had to lay down flat on the ground. You didn't even have bent legs. Somebody had to hold your feet down. Some of you are old enough to remember us doing these things, and it hurt the way they held your feet down anyway, and you had to come all the way up and touch the opposite thing. I set the record that year. I did 560 of those things. I sat up through phys ed, through English class, and through lunch. My stomach muscles hurt for days after that. But I didn't care, because I was agile. You know, it took a while for me to put all the pieces together to figure out why the coach disappeared so quickly after class. So he had to get in his little office there off the gym, get his shoe off the scissors, cut the hole in his sock, put the shoe back on and catch me, run me down. He didn't go around with holes in his socks. But he saw a, he saw a vulnerable kid that needed help. And he touched his life with grace. Now I want to tell you something. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, our young people have these kind of moments all the time. All the time. And they need grace waiting for them to get through those vulnerable things. And I know that God puts inadequacies in our life that he, he's not even going to take away for us. He did it to Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, remember he had this thorn in the flesh and he went to him and asked God to take it away and God said no. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weaknesses. We need to give our kids grace, the freedom to be different, freedom to be vulnerable. Third thing is, grace-based homes give their kids the freedom to be candid, where they can actually tell you what's on their mind and on their heart, even though it might be stuff we're not excited about hearing. For instance, they might be doubting things of their faith. They might question that Jesus is God, or you know, salvation is only through Jesus. This is not a time to freak out and panic. They need to be able to talk about it. Or it might be a problem they're having in school or with somebody else. Or it might be a problem they're having with you as a parent. Uh, we make mistakes. We're inadequate people. We're imperfect people. We make mistakes. Our kids need to have some, some dignified outlet where they can talk with us about this without it boiling up inside of them. Now, obviously, if they're going to say how disappointed they are in us, they've got to do it respectfully. And one of the ways you can raise the chance that your kids will always respond respectfully to you when they're frustrated with you is always respond respectfully to them when you're frustrated with them. That's how God deals with us. That's how we should deal with them. My um, son Cody was a junior in high school. It was a Tuesday night. He approached me. He said, Dad, I think it was a Tuesday. He said, Dad, I need you to sign me out of school tomorrow at noon. And why would I do this? Oh, because it's opening day of the Diamondbacks, and my friend Steve has two tickets right behind the dugout, and he invited me to go. Now, the year before, the Diamondbacks had beaten the Yankees in the World Series, so this is a big opening day. And, but for some dumb reason, I thought I needed to teach my son about personal responsibility. 
And so I said, but, but Cody, you're a student. Students go to school at 8 and they come home at 3 o'clock. Yeah, but Dad, Dad, it's going to be so cool because I think either Schilling or Randy Johnson on the mountain. But, but, but son, you're a student. Students don't get out of school whenever they want to. But Dad, they're going to have like F-16s fly over. I understand that. That might be nice. But son, you got to understand that, you know, personal responsibility says that we go till we're done at school. Then, you know, I don't get to take off just because something fun's coming. But Dad, I, I think Alice Cooper's singing the national anthem. And I kept coming back to personal responsibility. Finally, he was exasperated with me. And he got real quiet. And then he said this. He said, you know, Dad, I bring you home straight A's. All I've ever brought you home on my report card is straight A's. I can't bring you home any better grades than I'm bringing you. Now, you, you decide whether I can go to that game tomorrow. And it was like God reached down and did one of these right in the top of my head. <laughs> I reached in my pocket and I took out two 20s. And I said, buy the big hot dogs and the big drinks for you and Stephen. And please forgive me for being such a bonehead. This is so stupid that I did this. Now, now by the way, <laughs> that's straight A's. He got that from his mother's side of the gene pool. I mean, the real irony of this whole thing is that I was trying to teach him about personal academic responsibility. First of all, I would have never asked my dad for permission to get out. I'd have just skipped school. I'd have played hooky. <laughs> On top of that, I never made straight A's. That's her grades. I always felt you should have vowels and consonants on your report card. <laughs> See, look, Dad, you can play find a word. There's several in here. Um, it was just foolish, just foolish. But we can do that very easily. Look, look, at, look at this verse here in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at this. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And look at Colossians 4, 6. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to respond and answer everyone. Let me give you the last one there. Besides giving kids the freedom to be different and vulnerable and candid. We need to give, grace-based home, give their kids the freedom to make mistakes, to make mistakes. Now, I'm not saying that, that there aren't consequences to making mistakes, because there are, and it doesn't mean we don't do something, because, you know, discipline and correction are a form of grace. But if home is where life is making up its mind, and I believe it is, and it needs to be a place where disappointments are processed, hurts are endured, and mistakes never mean the end of a relationship. Now, where did I get these things from? I got these from how God is dealing with us. And I think it's very difficult for us to give something we haven't first received. If you're here and you're hearing all this grace stuff, say, I need to know more about how I get that initial grace from Jesus Christ. There's going to be people up here at the end. You can come up and talk to any one of them, and they'll help you out on that. Because we never want anyone leaving this church not understanding how much they're dearly loved by God, and he wants to set them free at the heart level. You know, one of the pillars, one of the standards that Jamie has put forth in the vision for this church is this church is going to be a church that is completely fueled by the power of God's grace. And it, it needs to not just happen here on Sunday. It needs to happen at home. 
and start there. And so I appreciate you letting me have time to share this with you. And I, I hope that if, if we can get together down there in November, I promise you we will, we will turn this into second nature for you in that day and a half down there. Because we appreciate it. this. I love this church. And I want us to be a church where, where grace shows up under stress consistently. Why don't you come on up here and close this down here, Gene. Thank you. No, thank you, Tim. That was awesome. And I uh, really appreciate you sharing your heart, your stories, and especially God's Word with us. Um, I, and many of you know I, uh, Tim and I have a very special friendship because God used him as the initial catalyst to draw me here to Scottsdale Bible Church. And I remember thinking that if Tim Kimmel is at all indicative of the flavor of this church, then this is a church I want to be at. So thank you, brother. That was awesome. Yep, you guys can clap again for him. So here's what uh, we're going to do. If, if anything you heard tonight or today touched you and you're like, man, I want more, like why does it have to end now, then we got three avenues for you. The first avenue is that, uh, as Tim mentioned, on November 6th and 7th uh, at East Valley Bible Church, Tom Schrader's the pastor there, Tim's going to be doing a regional conference called Raising Truly Great Kids. And so you might want to attend that. It's a Friday night, Saturday morning. It's going to be a great time where a lot of the principles that he started to allude to of this uh, the building blocks, he's going to share in seminar format. So please take advantage of that. You can get more information and a brochure about that out at our table here in, in the back. And then secondly is that he also has some books out there. So Tim's an author uh, and very well published. And so if you want to read more of what he has written, we have books out there as well in the back today. And then thirdly, you might not know this, but Tim teaches a class here at our church on a weekly basis called Grace Place. It's a new class that takes place on Wednesday evenings at our Wednesday evening family night. So please feel free to start attending his class and spend more time with Tim and Darcy and learning about some of these things. Um, now, many of you know, if you've been here at Scottsdale Bible for any length of time, that once a month we have what we call an elders fund offering. It's in addition to our regular offering. It is something that goes almost solely to the poor and the needy and to projects in our community. And so our elders are going to come forward now and we're going to end our service today by taking our elders fund offering and let me just let you know that this particular month a couple times a year we decide to use the offering for a very special purpose need in our community wouldn't you know that next month Ravi Zacharias who's probably one of the foremost apologists defenders of the Christian faith is going to be here in Phoenix and Ravi speaks all over the world to heads of state other places and Ravi is doing a very very huge event down at ASU it's going to be held at Wells Fargo Arena, and he's going to be speaking to a bunch of secular ASU students, thousands of them, on the topic of, is faith delusional? Is faith delusional? In other words, he's going to take on that whole atheist thing that's been going on in the academic universities uh, today, and Ravi's going to speak directly to it, and we believe it's going to be a huge event, a kingdom event, as far as ministering to a lot of students. So a few large churches in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, including us, are funding this event. And so our offering today is going to go toward that event. So if that scratches at all where you itch, please partake in this, okay? So let me pray for us now, and then the uh, ushers will take up this offering. Joe will lead us in one closing song, and then you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for today. Thanks for Tim and the uh, obvious passion and wisdom that you've given him when it comes to our families. And Father, I pray that the things we have learned today, these principles, 
uh, would not just be things that we heard in a nice sermon, but they'd become the grit of our week, that we'd be able to apply these in our week. Father, I pray that uh, as we take up this offering now for Ravi and uh, for his ministry that's going to be ministering to us in this city, God, we pray you'd use this. Uh, use these resources, Lord. Translate them into changed lives, transformed lives, as people go from being uh, those who don't know anything about you to becoming fully devoted followers of your son, Jesus. Father, thank you for our time here today. Receive this last song of worship, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.